0: Welcome all to another episode of Finerin's Wake. At the mere mention of the words Russian literature, two names, plucked from a field of illustrious candidates, suggest themselves Leo Tolstoy and Fyodor. Dostoevsky. The primacy of the one or of the other yet remains a distinction unconferred. We know not to whom the gold goes, nor to whom the silver. And so we'll reserve our judgment. Withhold our choice, and await the administration of an accolade for another day. For now, though, we speak of Dostoevsky. Of all his works, the two worthiest of note on this occasion are The Brothers Karamazov, and Crime and Punishment. The former will be the subject of a future podcast. The latter is our concern today. One Name to Know less famous, perhaps, than that of the iniquitous protagonist Raskolnikov, is Pierre-Francois Lassner. An historical, as opposed to a merely fictional character, Lassner was the man on whom Dostoevsky's young murderer was based. Born of bourgeois parentage in the eastern part of France, Lassner had poetic aspirations. Dreams, in fact, of artistic greatness, and literary renown of which, to the very end of his life, he never fully let go. by all accounts, throughout his brief time on earth. He suffered neither the sting of poverty, nor the shame of want. His educational attainment was high, and his inheritance commensurately lofty. Every obstacle by which his progress through society might have been slowed was removed from his path. In a word, success and status awaited him, if only he could avoid falling off the road. Upon completing his studies, Lasner joined the French army Within a year of graduation, he exchanged the cap of a scholar for the bayonet of a soldier. While serving in the field, however, he was quietly devising plans for a forthcoming career, the culmination of which would lead to Dostoevsky's terrible inspiration. No sooner had Lassner enlisted than he abandoned his military post. His parents were shocked, while his radical literary friends cheered the dishonor. He promptly re-entered civilian life and habituated himself to immorality and crime. He was incarcerated intermittently, fined time and again, yet remained unreformed of his delinquent ways. His wickedness, having not yet peaked, only grew larger. Finally, it climaxed with his murder of a man by the name of Jean-Francois Chardon, and his elderly mother, with whom he lived. The former was slain with an axe, the latter suffocated with a pillow. His twin murders, enough to make a barbarian blush quickly became an international horror and the brazen defense with which he tried to justify them a scandal for all time. Citing France's widespread systemic injustice, a program of oppression of which he felt himself to be a blameless victim, Lassner argued that his violence was, by any measure, valid, given the unhealthy climate in which he lived. Culpability for his act, he claimed, resided rather in society than in himself. His trial became a thing of public theater, and his jail cell a veritable salon. In it, he played host to the gilded names of France's literary elite, from whom he amassed a personal library of some substance. At long last, having succeeded in captivating the attention of not only France, but the entire Western world. He was sentenced to death, brought to the guillotine, and killed at the tempestuous age of thirty-two. Dostoevsky, like Balzac, Hugo, and the rest of the French literati was engrossed by the story. Each, of course, was disturbed by it, but in different ways. Dostoevsky, most astute of the three, understood it not merely as the macabre misbehavior of one individual wretch, at one point in time, and in one sordid city. But as a general feeling of lawlessness by which European society, writ large, had become lately tainted, Russia was in the throes of a generational rift. Among the nation's restive youth, strength was deemed the ascendant morality, in accordance to the preaching of Thrasymachus and Nietzsche, while nihilism was the philosophy de rigueur. Christianity, so long the ballast by which the country was steadied, began to shed its formidable weight. It no longer convinced a continent drifting ever further into the murky depths of materialism, positivism, and science. This phenomenon is best voiced in Ivan Turgenev's masterpiece, Fathers and Sons a tale upon which I expound in an earlier episode. Dostoevsky, though only recently returned from his Siberian exile, wasn't insensitive to this changing tide. With no small amount of anguish, and with the numbing chill of trepidation at his feet, he felt its waves make contact with his skin. Having been thus bathed, he might have done one of two things. Retreated from the shoreline, along which these daunting eddies roiled, or dived deeper into the abyss. Undeterred by the depths before which he stood, and buoyed by a faith in Christ about which he was never more certain, he chose the latter. Crime and punishment was the result. Aided by the morbid example left by Lassner and adorned by the rubies of his own dazzling genius. It was a devastating response to Nietzsche's doctrine of power. He anticipated and, with dramatic éclat, buried the meopic german sinister idea. He depicted a man, Raskonikov, unmoored of morality and brimming with power. He fancied himself a reborn Borgia or a nascent Napoleon. A conqueror unencumbered by that same moral law to which, regardless of one's claim to papal paternity or his ownership of Europe, everyone is equally subjected. Everyone. Raskolnikov not excluded. Christian morality, he sooner learns, is unlikely to brook circumvention, and the will to power is an impossible creed by which to live. The following is an excerpt from the great account of a killer's psychology an atheist's sin, crime and punishment. I do hope that you enjoy. Guess, he said, with his former twisted and powerless smile. It was as if a shudder ran through her whole body. But you, I, why do you frighten me so? She said, smiling like a child. I must be a great friend of his, since I know, Raskonikov went on, still looking relentlessly in her face, as if he were no longer able to take his eyes away. This Lizavita... he didn't want to kill her. He killed her accidentally. He wanted to kill the old woman when she was alone. And he went there. And then... Lizavita came in. Then he... Killed her, too. Another terrible minute passed. They both went on looking at each other. So you can't guess? He suddenly asked, feeling as if he were throwing himself from a bell tower. No, Sonya whispered, barely audibly. Take a good look. Again, as soon as he said this, a former familiar sensation suddenly turned his soul to ice. He looked at her, and suddenly, in her face, he seemed to see the face of Lizavita. He vividly recalled the expression of Lizavita's face as he was approaching her with the axe and she was backing away from him towards the wall, her hand held out, with a completely childlike fright on her face exactly as when little children suddenly begin to be frightened of something, stare fixedly and uneasily at what frightens them, back away, and holding out a little hand, are preparing to cry. Almost the same thing now happened with Sonya as well. Just as powerlessly... With the same fright, she looked at him for a time. Then suddenly, holding out her left hand, she rested her fingers barely, lightly, on his chest. And slowly began to get up from the bed, backing farther and farther away from him while looking at him more and more, fixedly. Her terror suddenly communicated itself to him. Exactly the same fright showed on his face as well. He began looking at her in exactly the same way, and even with almost the same childlike smile. You've guessed, he whispered at last. Lord, a terrible cry tore itself from her breast. Powerlessly, she fell onto the bed, face down on the pillows. But after a moment she quickly got up again, quickly moved closer to him, seized both his hands and, squeezing them tightly with her thin fingers as in a vice, again began looking fixedly in his face, as though her eyes were glued to him. With this last Desperate look, she wanted to seek out and catch hold of at least some last hope for herself. But there was no hope. No doubt remained. It was all so. Even later, afterwards... When she remembered this moment, she found it both strange and wondrous. Precisely why had she seen at once that there was no longer any doubt? She could not really say, for instance, that she had anticipated anything of the sort. And yet now, as soon as he told her, it suddenly seemed to her that she really had anticipated this very thing. Come, Sonia, enough. Don't torment me, he begged with suffering. This was not the way. This was not at all the way he had intended to reveal it to her. But thus it came out. As if forgetting herself, she jumped up and, wringing her hands, walked halfway across the room. But she came back quickly and sat down again beside him, almost touching him, shoulder to shoulder. All at once, as if pierced she gave a start cried out and not knowing why threw herself on her knees before him what what have you done to yourself she said desperately and jumping up from her knees threw herself on his neck embraced him, and pressed him very, very tightly in her arms. Raskonnikov recoiled and looked at her with a sad smile. You're so strange, Sonia. You embrace me and kiss me when I've just told you about that, you're forgetting yourself. No one, no one in the world is unhappier than you are now, she exclaimed, as if in a frenzy, not hearing his remark and suddenly burst into sobs, as if in hysterics. A feeling long unfamiliar to him flooded his soul and softened it all at once. He did not resist. Two tears rolled from his eyes and hung on his lashes. So you won't leave me, Sonia? he said. Looking at her almost with hope. No, no, never, not anywhere, Sonia cried out. I'll follow you, I'll go wherever you go. Oh Lord, ah, wretched me, why, why didn't I know you before? Why didn't you come before? Oh, Lord. Well, so I've come. Now you've come. Oh, what's to be done now? Together, together, she kept repeating. As if oblivious, and again she embraced him. I'll go to hard labor with you he suddenly seemed to flinch. The former hateful and almost arrogant smile forced itself to his lips. But maybe I don't want to go to hard labor, Sonia, he said. Sonia glanced at him quickly. After her first passionate and tormenting sympathy for the Unhappy man. The horrible idea of the murder struck her again. In the changed tone of his words, she suddenly could hear the murderer. She looked at him in amazement. As yet she knew nothing of why or how or for what it had been. Now, all of these questions flared up at once in her consciousness. And again, she did not believe it. He, he, a murderer, is it really possible? <laughs> what is this? Where am I? she said, deeply perplexed as if she had still not come to her senses. But you, you, your soul, how could you make yourself do it? What is this? To rob her, of course. Stop it, Sonia, he replied, somehow wearily and as if with vexation. Sonia stood as if stunned, but suddenly exclaimed, You were hungry. You. It was to help your mother, yes? No, Sonia, no, he murmured, turning away and hanging his head. Mm, I wasn't so hungry. I did want to help my mother, but that's not quite right either. Don't torment me, Sonia. Sonia clasped her hands. But can it be? Can it be that it's all actually true? Lord, what sort of truth is this? Who can believe it? And how is it, how is it that you could give away your last penny and yet kill in order to rob? Ah, she suddenly cried out. That money you gave to Katerina Ivanovna, that money, Lord, was that the same money? No, Sonia. He interrupted hastily. Don't worry. It wasn't the same money. That was money my mother sent to me through a merchant. It came when I was sick, and I gave it away the same day Razumikin saw. It was he who received it for me. It was my money, my own, really, mine. Sonia listened to him in perplexity, and tried as hard as she could to understand something. And that money? Though I don't even know if there was any money, he added softly, and as if pensively. I took a purse from around her neck. Then, a suede purse. A fat one, stuffed full. But I didn't look inside. I must not have had time. In the things, there were just some cufflinks and little chains. I buried all the things along with the purse under a stone in some unknown courtyard. The very next morning, it's all still there. Sonia was listening as hard as she could. Well, then, why? How can you say it was for the sake of robbery if you didn't take anything? She said quickly, grasping at a straw. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. "'whether to take the money or not,' he spoke pensively. "'And all at once, as if recollecting himself, "'he grinned quickly and briefly. "'Ah, what a stupid thing to come out with, eh?' "'The thought flashed through Sonya. "'Can he be mad?' But she abandoned it at once. No. There was something else here. She understood nothing here. Nothing at all. You know, Sonia, he said suddenly, with a sort of inspiration. You know, I can tell you this much. If I'd killed them only because I was hungry, he went on stressing each word, and looking at her mysteriously but sincerely, I would now be happy. You should know that. And what is it to you? What is it to you? He cried out, after a moment, even with some sort of despair. What is it to you if I've now confessed that I did a bad thing? This stupid triumph over me. What is it to you? Ah, Sonia, what is it for this that I came to you today? Sonia again wanted to say something, but kept silent. That is why I called you to go with me yesterday. Because you are the only one I have left. Called me where? Sonia asked timidly. Not to steal, not to kill, don't worry, not for that, he grinned caustically. We are different, and you know, Sonia. It's only now, only now that I understand where I was calling you yesterday. And yesterday, when I was calling you, I didn't know where myself. I called you for one thing. I came to you for one thing. That you not leave me. You won't leave me, Sonia. She pressed his hand. And why? Why did I tell her? Why did I reveal it to her? He exclaimed in despair after a moment, looking at her with infinite pain. Now you're waiting for explanations from me, Sonia. You're sitting and waiting, I can see that. And what am I going to tell you? Because you won't understand any of it. You'll only wear yourself out with suffering because of me. So, now you're crying and embracing me again. So why are you embracing me? Because I couldn't endure it myself and have come to shift the burden on to another. You suffer, too. It'll be so much the easier for me. Can you really love such a scoundrel? But aren't you suffering as well, cried Sonia. The same feeling flooded his soul again, and softened it again for a moment. I have a wicked heart, Sonia. Take note of that. It can explain a lot. That's why I came, because I'm wicked. There are those who wouldn't have come, but I'm a coward and a scoundrel. Well, And what if I am? Oh, this is not it. I have to speak now and I don't even know how to begin. He stopped and fell to thinking. Ah, We're so different, he cried out again. We're not a match. And why, why did I come? I'll never forgive myself for it. No, no, it's good that you came, Sonia exclaimed. It's better that I know. Much better. He looked at her with pain. Why not, after all? he said, as if reconsidering. Since that is how it was, you see, I wanted to become a Napoleon. That's why I killed. Well, is it clear now? N- no, Sonia whispered, naively and timidly. But go on, just go on. I'll understand. I'll understand everything within myself, she kept entreating him. You will? All right, we'll see. We fell silent, and thought it over for a long time. The thing is that I once asked myself this question. How would it have been if Napoleon, for example, had happened to be in my place, and didn't have Toulon or Egypt or the crossing of Mont Blanc to start his career. But instead of all these beautiful and monumental things, had quite simply some ridiculous old crone, a Lettinstrar's widow, whom on top of that he had to kill in order to filch money from her trunk for his career, you understand. Well, so? Could he have made himself do it if there was no other way out? Wouldn't he have shrunk from it because it was so unmonumental and, and sinful? Well, I tell you, I suffered a terribly long time over this question, so that I was terribly ashamed when I finally realized, somehow, all at once, not only that he would not shrink, but that it wouldn't even occur to him that it was unmonumental, and he wouldn't understand at all what there was to shrink from. And if there was indeed no other path for him, eat up and throttle her before she could make a peep without a moment's thoughtfulness. So I, too, came out of my thoughtfulness. I throttled her, following the example of my authority. And that's exactly how it was. You think it's funny? Yes, Sonia. The funniest thing is that maybe that's precisely how it was. Sonia did not think it was funny at all. You'd better tell me straight out. Without examples, she asked. Still more timidly. And barely audibly he turned to her looked at her sadly and took her hands you're right again Sonia it's all nonsense almost sheer babble you see My mother, as you know, has almost nothing. My sister received an education only by chance and is doomed to drag herself about as a governess. All their hopes were in me alone. I was studying, but I couldn't support myself at the university and had to take a leave for a while. even if things had managed to go on that way. Then in about twelve or ten years, if circumstances turned out well, I could still only hope to become sort of teacher or official with a thousand-ruble salary. And by then, my mother would have withered away with cares and grief, and I still wouldn't be able to set her at ease. And my sister, well... Something even worse might have happened with my sister. And who wants to spend his whole life passing everything by, turning away from everything? To forget his mother, and politely endure, for example, his sister's offense? Why? So that, having buried them, he can acquire new ones, a wife and children, And then leave them, too, without a copeck or a crust of bread. Well, well. So I decided to take possession of the old woman's money and use it for my first years without tormenting my mother to support myself at the university and for the first steps after the university and to do it all sweepingly, radically, so as to set up a whole new career entirely and start out on a new, independent path. Well, well, that's all. Well, that I killed the old woman, of course, it was a bad thing to do. Well, but enough of that. In some sort of Powerlessness, he dragged himself to the end of his story and hung his head. Oh, that's not it. Not it, Sonia exclaimed in anguish. How can it be so? No, that's not it. Not it. You can see for yourself that's not it, yet it's the truth. I told it sincerely. What kind of truth is it, O Lord? I only killed a louse, Sonia A useless, nasty, pernicious louse A human being, a louse Not a louse, I know it myself, he replied, looking at her strangely Anyway, I'm lying, Sonia, he added. I've been lying for a long time. All that is not it. You're right in saying so. There are quite different reasons here. Quite, quite different. I haven't talked with anyone for a long time, Sonia. I have a bad headache now. Though Raskolnikov was looking at Sonia as he said this, he was no longer concerned with whether she understood or not. The fever had him wholly in its grip. He was in some sort of gloomy ecstasy. Sonia understood that this gloomy catechism had become his faith. And law. Then I realized, Sonia, he went on ecstatically, that power is given only to the one who dares to reach down and take it. Here there is one thing, one thing only. One has only to dare. And then a thought took shape in me for the first time in my life, one that nobody had ever thought before me. Nobody. It suddenly came to me as bright as the sun. How is it that no man before now has dared or dares yet, while passing by all this absurdity, quite simply to take the whole thing by the tail and whisk it off to the devil? I wanted to dare. And I killed. I just wanted to dare, Sonia. And that's the whole reason. Oh, be still. Be still, cried Sonia, clasping her hands. You deserted God. And God has stricken you. And given you over to the devil. By the way, Sonia, when I was lying in the dark and imagining it all, was it the devil confounding me, eh? Be still. Don't laugh, blasphemer. You understand nothing. Simply nothing. Oh, Lord. Nothing. He understands nothing. Be still, Sonia. I'm not laughing at all. I know myself that a devil was dragging me. Be still, Sonia. Be still. He repeated gloomily and insistently. I know everything. I thought it all out and whispered it all out when I was lying there in the dark. I argued it all out with myself, to the last little trace. And I know everything, everything. And I was so sick, so sick of all this babble then. I wanted to forget everything and start anew, Sonia, and to stop babbling. Do you really think I went into it headlong, like a fool? No. No. I went into it like a bright boy, and that's what ruined me. And do you really think I didn't at least know, for example, that since I'd begun questioning and querying myself, do I have the right to have power? It meant that I do not have the right to have power. Or that if I pose the question, is man a louse? It means that for me, man is not a louse, but that he is a louse for the one to whom it never occurs, who goes straight ahead without any questions. Because, if I tormented myself for so many days, would Napoleon have gone ahead or not? means I must already have felt clearly that I was not Napoleon I endured all all the torment of all this battle Sonia and I longed to shake it all off my back I wanted to kill without casuistry Sonia to kill for myself for myself alone I didn't want to lie about it even to myself It was not to help my mother that I killed. Nonsense. I did not kill so that, having obtained means and power, I could become a benefactor of mankind. Nonsense. I simply killed. Killed for myself. For myself alone. And whether I would later become anyone's benefactor or would spend my life like a spider catching everyone in my web and sucking the life sap out of everyone, should at that moment have made no difference to me. It was not the money, above all, that I wanted to kill, Sonia. Not money so much as something else. I know all this now. Understand me, perhaps, continuing on that same path, I would never again repeat the murder, there was something else I wanted to know. Something else was nudging my arm. I wanted to find out then, and find out quickly, whether I was a louse like all the rest. Or a man. Would I be able to step over, or not? Would I dare to reach down and take, or not? Am I a trembling creature, or do I have the right to kill? The right to kill, Sonia clasped her hands. Ah, Sonia, he cried irritably. And I was about to make some objection to her, but remained scornfully silent. Don't interrupt me, Sonia. I wanted to prove only one thing to you. That the devil did drag me there then. But afterwards he explained to me that I had no right to go there. Because I'm exactly the same louse as all the rest. He made a mockery of me, and so I've come to you now. Welcome, your guest. If I weren't a louse, would I have come to you? Listen, when I went to the old woman that time, I went only to try. You should know that. And you killed. Killed. But how did I kill? Really? Is that any way to kill? Is that how one goes about killing? The way I went about it then? Someday I'll tell you how I went about it. Was it the old crone I killed? I killed myself, not the old crone. Whooped myself right then and there, forever. It was the devil killed the old crone, not me. Enough, enough, Sonia, enough. Let me be, he suddenly cried out in convulsive anguish. Let me be. He leaned his elbows on his knees and pressed his head with his palms as with a pincer. Such suffering burst in a painful wail from Sonia. Well, what to do now? Tell me, he said suddenly raising his head and looking at her, his face hideously distorted by despair. ''What to do?'' she exclaimed, suddenly jumping up from her place, and her eyes, still full of tears, suddenly flashed. ''Stand up!'' she seized him by the shoulder. He rose, Looking at her almost in amazement, go now, this minute, stand in the crossroads, bow down, and first kiss the earth you've defiled, then bow to the whole world, on all four sides, and say aloud to everyone, I have killed. Then God will send you life again. Will you go? Will you go? She kept asking him, all trembling as if in a fit, seizing both his hands, squeezing them tightly in her own, and looking at him with fiery eyes. He was amazed and even struck by her sudden ecstasy. So it's hard labor, is it, Sonia? I must go and denounce myself, he asked gloomily. Accept suffering and redeem yourself by it. That's what you must do. And with that, dear listener, I bid thee farewell.